Hello and welcome to One Foot on the Stool. I'm Martin. Now, before we begin, I just want to put a quick caveat on the start of these first four episodes. These first four episodes were originally recorded and uploaded in 2019. So if you hear any cultural references that seem a bit dated, that's because they are. So you might hear a guest that you know has got a kid, but they say on the audio that they don't have any kids. That's because it was two years ago. Or somebody might mention a maniac in the White House, and that's because these were recorded in 2019. So let's just get on with it. Hello and welcome to episode one of One Foot on the Stall. I'm Martin and this week joining me is an author called Hayden Gribble. Hayden, hello. Hello Martin, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you very much. And to anyone who's wondering if that's a pen name or a character from Harry Potter, it is neither. It is my given name. I'm I'm having to be very careful because my son's name is Aiden, so it's very easy for me to, in my head, get those confused. Do you know, as a kid, I was called Aiden, Nathan, uh, a lot of other stuff we probably couldn't broadcast here. But uh, it's it's funny how those names are so similar, isn't it? And uh, yet so different at the same time. Because he gets, oh, what's your name? Hayden, Adrian, even Nigen at one point. Wow. Yeah. Can I use that one for a book? Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Brilliant. Excellent. Let me just scribble that one down. Excellent. There's no real format to this podcast yet. Week by week, I'm just hopefully going to get a different guest host on uh, to talk about their dealings with like mental health or depression. Why don't we get a little bit of background about you, Hayden? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, uh, I'm uh, uh, nearly 30. Oh, God. Um, and I've not only uh, been a writer for the last eight or nine years, uh, I've also been a podcaster too. Uh, I podcast on Doctor Who, uh, of which I'm a big fan on a podcast called the diddly dumb podcast uh and i've also run my own podcast uh which is called podcasters royale and that's a james bond podcast which i've been doing for about three and a half years and in between that i try and get by as a everyday adult uh, whilst in my head i still think if i eat a banana i will become banana man that's there we are well that's a very good point because i ate my first uh, five a day last week and nothing happened well, that's Nothing. probably because your name isn't Eric. I know. I know. It's disappointing. <laughs> Do you know how many years went by before I realized that it was the goodies who used to narrate that? Is it really? I'm this was, year's yeah. old. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only reason why I started eating fruit was thanks to Banana Man. And I stopped sucking my thumb when I was about six years old when I watched Red Dwarf for the first time and you had Dwayne Dibley there. But yes, yeah, so I'm a big uh, Doctor Who and James Bond fan and I've written... Three books which have been published. Uh, The first one was a crime thriller book called The Man in the Corner. And the second came out in 2017. And that was called Child Out of Time, growing up with Doctor Who during the wilderness years. And then I released uh, the first in a series of science fiction young adult books called Captain Random versus the Sandman, which is aimed at the young adult audience. And that came out last year. I think it was through Doctor Who Online that I first became familiar with your work. Oh, was that the uh, short story I wrote for the texture? Yeah, and then then obviously you joined Diddly Dumb. Mm, That would have been probably around the time where I was trying to find an in into the world of Doctor Who and trying to write for things that I was passionate about and try and make a living from them, which I failed miserably at, but uh, I gave it a go. (laughs) If you don't mind me delving a little deeper... um, Mm -hmm. 
What's been your experience with mental health? I've had a checkered past with uh, my mental health, my mental health, sorry, in the past. If only there was a mental health, uh, I might have actually uh, had some guidance. But um, no, I I started out to struggle with low mood uh, in my teens, in my late teens, um, especially uh, sort of around the time of uh, taking GCSEs. So in the UK, that would be sort of about 15, 16 years old. Struggled on and off with depressive spells into my 20s and then a not just one family bereavement but a double family bereavement knocked me back uh, in 2015 which set me back quite a way actually and that's probably when I have had my darkest periods and every now and then I have to be quite careful with the amount of workload I take on and just really sort of watch out and just try and be quite self-aware I think with my mood and with with myself in general really but we have a we have a history of a mental illness in the family uh, unfortunately it's been quite a long one i suppose yeah about half my life i'd say sorry to hear about that what what do you think it is about creative types that seem to be prone to bouts of mental health uh, mental wellness uh, uh, now you're doing it um <laughs> i think it i don't know i mean maybe it goes back to i'm I, I, apologies if i'm sounding uh oh, what's the word uh very pompous here listeners um but i suppose it's almost like you know that william burroughs line you know opening the doors of perception i think i think creative types are more susceptible because they are maybe it's just the way that our brains are wired i guess really it's the way that we are open to all kinds of different perceptions of life and there must be an element of vulnerability there Uh, which we are just more susceptible to suffer from. But as time goes on and the more experiences I pick up, I actually think it's the more I've experienced with people who I know is it's, it's not just creative types. And if anything, it's more people who have, uh, you know, had a very difficult upbringing uh, or they've had a traumatic experience in recent times or, you know, in the past, of course, they haven't uh, been able to cope with. I think for myself, I mean, being a creative person, I just think I was maybe a bit more, I don't know, just maybe a bit more emotionally open, perhaps. I think you might be on to something there. I mean, we're recording on the day that Keith Flint mm, um, sadly yeah. passed away. I, I know there's no confirmed reports yet, but it would seem that he took his own life. Mm-hmm. I think Liam Howlett's alluded to that in the press, hasn't he? So. Yeah, um, and it's just a, a sorry state of affairs. I mean, the, growing up, the prodigy were just—I don't—they were my Beatles. Right. Wow. It's like they—they they were the first people to come along, along and really shake stuff up, mm. and they terrified my parents, which is always great when you're a young kid looking mm. to get into music. Well, that, that's what pop music and well, rock music and e-form music in general should really do is it should shock. You know, I mean, my my parents' generation, their parents were shocked by David Bowie put his arm over um, Mark Ronson's, sorry, Mick Ronson even, sorry, uh, Mick Ronson's shoulder uh, on top of the pops with Starman. And for us, it was Keith Flint in the black and white old tube station tunnel uh, for the firestarter video uh, back in 1996 which did sure. get i can't remember if top of the pops was broadcast on a thursday or a friday back then but i specifically remember children talking about it in the playground the next day um and that was something which uh, yeah which did scare our parents to a certain extent but 
you know, it was sort of evoking the essence of punk, I suppose, 20 years previously. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, very sad. And of course, we had Chester Bennington. What was that? Was that two years ago now? It was two years ago. Two um, years yeah, ago. Chris wow. Cornell as well. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess probably the most famous one out of this bunch is Robin Williams. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But that was, um, I remember seeing an, a, an interview with uh, Robin Williams' wife who was talking about how he, I think he developed this, um, was it this degenerative illness, I think, and he was starting to lose control. And she was, yeah. she actually said that she was quite proud that he'd sort of taken control back and made a decision that he thought was obviously better for himself. But of course, that, you know, it's, it's an incredibly dark thought and an incredibly dark place to find yourself i've been quite lucky i've never been suicidal the thought has never really crossed my mind because i've always thought just how terrible it would be for my family especially if anything like that was ever to happen but so i i I can't really speak from um from the perspective of someone who has been suicidal but it's it's a terribly dark place and i think one of the greatest things that we've got now is that there is more of an awareness of mental health in the in our world today and you have got companies like the samaritans like calm we've got uh, i know the people that, that i work for we've got um, an axa healthcare line which is 24 hours so you can call up and you can speak to a counselor uh, at the end of a phone without um having to pay which is fantastic and i think the thing that really sort of woke me up i think to my perspective of depression and mental health was I first had my uh, first round of counseling back in 2010. And it was actually, it was, I, I had a, um, I had a bizarre sense of paranoia and it was this, all of a sudden this feeling of loss and it wasn't a loss of control. It was just this, I just remember this feeling of loss and it was very difficult to explain. I spent a couple of days uh, in my house, I didn't didn't leave my house, which is very strange for me because I am a very active person and I I'm I'm slightly hyperactive. You know, I I I don't like to be sat down for too long. I like to get up and I like to move around. I like to be doing things. In fact, actually, just before this, I was on my exercise bike, so uh, <laughs> I was uh, yeah just trying to uh, burn up as much energy as I could. Um, and I just slumped for a couple of days and I was I went to my doctors and because of my family history they were you know uh, quite eager for me to see somebody fairly quickly which I did and I had three or four lessons of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and it's those sort of talking therapies which helped me and then through that I've always always been quite open about how I feel uh, whether it's to my fiance or it's to a friend or it's, you know, mum or whatever, it's, um, I'm very honest as to where I am at that point. So I suppose at that point with, with those talking therapies, it really made me think that, you know, if I ever did feel, or if I ever did get into a place and heaven forbid, I ever did, uh, where I felt like taking my own life, I would, I'd like to think that I'd be, I'd be able to turn to someone and talk to somebody but who you know who who knows it's yeah what was it like trouble. when you first went to the gp and discussed this because the the difficulty i had is i recorded episode zero of this and mm. i admitted to having suicidal thoughts i'd spoken to my fiance and my family but the hardest mm. point for me was admitting it to the gp and i don't know why i can't explain why 
I, I don't know. I just felt this fear about telling the GP. Like, somehow, if I told the GP, it made it real. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, what was it like for you? Slightly tricky, because I grew up in a very small village, um, and everybody knew everyone. So the village doctors in that village had been the village doctors since the year dot, you know, the, the 30 years previous or whatever, you know. And um, so they, they, they knew all of my family. And um, I suppose there was an element of thinking if I went to my GP, there was an element of defeat, I guess. The fact that I couldn't handle things on my own, which was, you know, which was fairly tough. But as soon as I got it off my chest and I told them how I felt, uh, I did feel a lot more comfortable about the situation. I had a second round of uh, CBT in 2013, and that was linked to a spell of, I suppose you could call it unemployment. I mean, I, I, I'd gone from a full time job down to just trying to make it in the world of freelance and jobs weren't coming my way. Uh, I had to sign uh, on the dole. And I was still living at home and I was about 24 at that point. So whilst everybody else is sort of starting to settle down or, you know, find their own places to live, I'm still at home in this, you know, crappy little village, <laughs> not being able to, you know, rub two beans together. That time when I went, I was lucky to find a counsellor who I really clicked with. And I think I ended up having about 10 sessions uh, with this counsellor. Um, they were incredibly helpful. I remember just, again, being very open when I came back from, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd tell, I never told my father where I was going. I told my mother and I would just say, oh, well, today, yes, this this went quite well uh, or this was all right. Um, I always found the hardest was always the first one because this is a stranger in the room and you're having to sort of bear your soul in a way. <laughs> you know, you have to be sort of quite naked with this total, total stranger. I can understand that. That's probably the same type of feeling that I had um, with my mm. GP. Um, wh why do you think it is that you didn't tell your dad? Because I've kind of experienced a similar thing. I find it, find it harder to be more emotional in front of men. And I'm wondering if that's sort of indicative mm. of male relationships as a whole. I don't think as children, we as males are given the tools to deal with our emotions. I think we've grown up in a society and we've grown up in an environment where we've almost been told to man up on every occasion. You know, when, when we're children and we fall over and we, and we cry, we may be in a situation with our, you know, especially with our fathers where they were told to do exactly the same by their parents. You know, I mean, that things were a lot tougher 40 or 50 years ago when, you know, our, our parents were, were growing up. Mental health wasn't really a thing. And if it was, you were, you know, you were carted away. It was a very, I don't want to use the word innocent when I compare, you know, people just to being sectioned um, because of their mental health. But I don't think the understanding was there back then. And I think that we've been quite unlucky at the tail end of Generation X or early millennials or whatever you want to call it, where we've still grown up in a society during the 80s and 90s where it wasn't okay to talk about this yet. I just feel like as as sons to our fathers, I don't feel like the relationships are there. It's, it's like we'll, you know, to, to, to talk to them about this kind of thing. I mean, you'd be, you'd be, very, you'd be very lucky if you did have that. Um, but I know I certainly didn't. I just don't think we're we're given 
the equipment or certainly we weren't i know i wasn't to deal with things like that i mean i i would i would cry quite a lot when i was at school it would be over you know quite minor things sometimes but i never really got the sympathy from my father and i know especially that um if i was off sick he would look upon that and frown upon it you know if i was off ill so i, I think it's really it's indicative of 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 his upbringing um which was the reason why and i do remember once actually when i was in my teens i, I did try and talk to him about something he, he just wasn't one of those fathers that you'd go and talk to about that you'd be brilliant dad if you wanted to you know talk about uh, your hobbies and interests or you i don't know wanted to go for a day out or you know wanted to do something fun but when it came to the deeper stuff i just don't think he had those tools um to deal with it and i think as a consequence i didn't either which is quite sad really but hey we're learning <laughs> if i'm lucky to have kids and i hope i do um it's certainly not a way i would uh, I would be with them at all. Um, but you're made of your experiences, aren't you? Yeah. I've got two kids, a boy and a girl. Mm. And I do, like you said, we kind of grew up at the tail end of that lad culture sort of yeah. um, mentality. And I, I do find myself in a conundrum with my son sometimes where he's upset about something. And there's a part of my brain which is like, oh, come on, just man up. And then there's mm. another part of me that's like, no, you know what? He's upset. You should give him a second and yeah there, there is a real like devil and angel on my shoulder moment um when mm, i'm trying to decide mm. the best way to react to him being upset i do think it's our generation i feel like we are i mean you look at what's happened in the last 10 to 20 years you know and just how far society's going and just how divided it's becoming again um i just feel it's it's sort of indicative of, of that really but it's just something that i like i said i hope that future generations it's it's watered down i do feel like the way in which people will be brought up will soften over time in that regard i don't think we'll be telling our children to man up even though if, even if we think it you know you you like you said you sort of caught yourself and thought oh you know it's not really you know he's he's clearly distressed about something it's tough it, it, and it all it all depends on where you are in your pecking order in the family as well i think because i'm the oldest and i certainly know um that i'm not really made up to deal with you know the the, the kind of the emotional strain that that can bring sometimes you know being the oldest brother when you've got two younger sisters you know if they've ever needed uh help you know it's it, I, i'm a fairly by nature i'm a fairly laid back guy i like to be organized but i'm fairly laid back um like to have a laugh and you know i, I, I sort of value and um, humor and comedy over most things in life but then when it comes to the heavier stuff uh it it does get quite difficult and i think it's because i just haven't i haven't been brought up in the you know knowing what to do and it doesn't help as well now that Unfortunately, my dad's not here to help me out with those matters. It's tough. I mean, if I was the younger brother, maybe I, you know, the youngest of, of three, maybe things would have been different. But uh, yeah, I, I think where you fall in the family can uh, can play a part too. I think you've got a point there because I'm the oldest out, out of me and my sister and mm. my son is eldest of the two kids. And I do find myself putting more on him than I would his little sister. Yeah. I mean, he's 10 and I do find myself thinking, Oh, come on. By the time I was 10, I was making my own breakfast and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But his little sister, I would never, I would just do it for her. And I, I think yeah. that goes back to our point about the way society treats boys and men. Yeah. It's almost difficult to speak about, um, 
you know, sort of the male and female divide in this current climate. Um, you know, I, I hope I don't say anything out of turn, but I do feel like there has to be a time soon where I think the emphasis is put on how we as men are brought up. You know, we've we've spoken, um, especially in Doctor Who circles recently, about you know the sense that you know obviously Jodie Whittaker's come in and that has upset a big or a very noisy minority. I'm not sure whether it's a majority or minority of fans. And there is a sense there that is, oh, because she's a girl now and blah, 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 which shouldn't really be a problem at all, you know, but uh, I do find that I do find it troubling um, that when, if you legitimately don't like the doctor being a woman, and it's not because you're sexist. It's just that, look, I've just, I've been brought up to know this character as 13 men. He's been a man for 50 odd years, which is a valid argument for people to then scream back. Oh, you're a sexist. You're a you know, misogynist. You're, you're a dinosaur. You know, it's, I think I just quoted M in Goldeneye there. Didn't mean to do that. You did. But yeah, I did. <laughs> did not mean to do that. Um, I think there's a real danger there too, because there's, just just because you just because you don't agree with something in the way that it's being done doesn't mean to say that you're to the extreme right of that argument as well let's say and that i do feel like that has sort of happened in doctor who fandom recently but what i was going to say is my my very long roundabout point um is that i i think there's been quite a big emphasis recently on you know on feminism and you know, fantastic we've now got you know, there is much more awareness and yes, there has to be more equality in the world. Of course there does, but I don't want the next generation of men or the next generation of you know males uh, in our society to be left behind or to feel like they're being ignored really. What kind of role do you think social media is playing when it comes to mental health? Terrible. I think it's playing a really bad part. I'm unlucky enough to be a football fan, and I'm even unluckier enough to be a Spurs fan. I know, I nearly didn't invite you on because of that. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, so when I was a child, my club were crap. They had a long and illustrious history, but it was just that, it was history. I spent a lot of time in the doldrums, and growing up in an Essex, Suffolk village, there were an awful lot of fans who would just jump on the bandwagon. And... Uh, some weekends I would feel quite sheepish about going into school, uh, especially after something like a 5-3 defeat when you've been 3-0 up at halftime. Thank you, Man United. Um, take that feeling now and amplify it by about 100. And that's kind of the vitriol that you get on social media in that respect. I've got a couple of friends who are Liverpool fans. Now, on the day that we're recording, Liverpool have... Uh, drawn against Everton in the Merseyside derby and they're now a point behind the leaders Man City when 10 fixtures ago they were about 10 points ahead just the kind of doom and gloom that they have been displaying in their messages to me over the last sort of 24 hours is definitely influenced by media and it's been influenced by the kind of the almost knee-jerk reaction of people who can just take to Twitter and just speak their views right there and then. Now, I've always been of the church that you should probably think before you speak. And I think the problem with social media is that it removes that middleman, that thought process. It just it just opens you to or it just invites you just to speak what is on your mind right there and then. And if you're angry or if you're upset, it's going to be a very extreme view. 
But if you're writing, uh, as a friend of mine did the other day, actually, a good friend of mine is a, is a Chelsea fan. And you may have to bleep this, Martin, but he said something along the lines of, fuck off back to North London, you homeless cunts. <laughs> now, I mean, obviously, being a football fan, you're quite deep-seated in the emotion and the tradition of supporting that club. And whoever you support, you're well within your rights to be passionate about that that team. Even you, Marty, with Arsenal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the thing I can't stand about social media, especially at the moment, is that there's a lot of bandwagon jumping, and there's a lot of that that middle thought process being taken out of the equation. And there's an awful lot of vitriol there, which almost does feel personal. I think to a certain respect yeah. and taking it back to Doctor Who, I know there was a, an incident recently where I think there was a small section of the audience booed at, at the BFI, I think when uh, they were told they'd been given the series 11 box set. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was taken completely out of, well, I'm not going to say out of context. Of course it didn't because it, it clearly happened, but it upset some people. Others didn't think it was much of a problem. Others thought it was almost everybody in the room. And of course that blew up on social media. Now, that wouldn't have happened if social media wasn't there. And there's huge benefits to social media. You know, you can, we can talk right now because we've spoken before over Twitter and Facebook. I can podcast with people in Australia thanks to, you know, the internet and thanks to social media. But there's definitely an element of it which makes me want to turn off. And actually recently I have been saying, mainly to my family, um, don't contact me on Messenger because I'm not, I'm not on there at the moment. I'm, ha I'm, I'm having a break. And those breaks are becoming rather frequent <laughs> to sort of uh, to sort of escape the um, the madness of it all, really, I suppose. And it, I know, obviously, we've had very divisive things happen in the world of politics recently as well, like the B word and the T word. And um, people have very strong opinions on that as well. But there just doesn't seem to be any meeting in the middle with social media. And I think that adds to quite a lot of angst and uh, even paranoia, I, I think, think, about other subjects. It's interesting when you bring up social media because we're probably the first generation that can directly contact the next generation, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, like, I'm, my dad is trying to research our family tree, and he's struggling to go past the 1700s because there's just no records. Right, but it's, yeah. it's interesting to think that my great-grandchildren will be able to pull up my tweets and be like, wow, granddad was sure angry about Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what is this Doctor Who he's talking about? I've never heard yeah, of this. It's, yeah, It's kind of weird. And I think that social media was designed to be reactionary. Mm. But I think it's kind of got to evolve because the way it's used has evolved so much in the past 10 years. I think people are slowly awakening to that fact. Yeah as well which is good because it's not healthy at all and i mean i've um i even know people who if i need to speak to them i i find i always find it easier to talk like we are now either you know over the phone or face to face i sometimes find that if you don't have that um sort of personable element there if you're just writing something to somebody it could be misconstrued i know that there's there's people who I've spoken to, who, or I know, or, you know, or in my family, and they, they will not talk over the phone anymore. They will only contact through messengers, so only, only through written word. So if I need to speak to them about something quite important, they won't pick up. And I'll write back saying, no, I don't want to pick up the phone. It's quite worrying, actually, because it, it does then make you think, oh dear, are they okay on the other end? 
I think people are slowly are slowly starting to come around to the idea that you know maybe this needs to be policed better or sort of sort of taped back a bit I suppose but um but I I I, I do struggle with social media on a number of occasions and it, I must admit I think it's got worse since the B word in uh, in 2016 that there does seem to be a very just a very decisive pull between what people think is right and what people think is wrong and there's just not much of meeting in the middle i find um i don't know what 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 do you think my problem with social media i think ricky gervais has kind of touched on this on some stand-up it enables you to create and curate your own little bubble Yes, where you only yeah. follow people who agree with you, you only interact with people who agree with you. And the reason why outrage spreads so quickly on something like Twitter is because you'll get 16,000 people following you that all kind of feel the same. Mm. So if something comes on your timeline you don't agree with and you retweet it, your 16,000 followers are then going to jump on it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm noticing more and more that context doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's a problem. I follow Graham Linehan on Twitter. Mm. And in recent oh, right, months, yeah. he's become quite a divisive person to follow. And I remember liking one of his tweets and getting a DM from someone telling me they were unfollowing me because he's transphobic. And if I follow him, that means I must be transphobic. Yeah, this is what I mean. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I. I think there's a wider discussion to be made about social media and more and more people need to realize their great grandchildren will be able to pull up their tweets. I deleted all of my tweets a couple of weeks ago because I was just like, you know what? This stuff is getting retweeted from 2016. I just can't be bothered with it anymore. And well, immediately I, mean, I... I got drawn straight back into a Twitter spat with someone. I was like, for fuck's sake, what can I do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it is, I mean, like, like you said, you know, Ricky Gervais, he said that, you know, you can create your own little bubble. In a sense, you know, you're completely within your rights to delete those those texts. Um, sorry, those uh, tweets even, sorry. Uh, <laughs> what texts have you been deleting, Martin? Oh, dear. <laughs> That's for another podcast, Hayden. <laughs> I, know, I know where you're coming from, because on Facebook, they've got that on this day thing. And there was a point when I first signed up to Facebook, which I think it was about 2007, where there was a feature on there where you could only start your sentence as Hayden Gribble is. Yeah, do you remember? And and, and none of the sentences really make any sense. And I just think, oh, God, what are people going to think of this? I'm looking back now, you know, 12 years later, thinking, you you were an idiot, weren't you? You know, but it's, I kind of don't think it's fair that those, that those things are sort of burnt into the Twitter sphere, as it were, because as we grow older, we're different people. You know, we, we, you you evolve. You can look back and think, oh, dear, wasn't I silly? <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, you know, but you, but you might not have the same views as you get older because you've got more experience. The world would have changed. You would have changed. But, yeah, there, there's something there's something about uh, about my grandchildren or my great grandchildren reading my tweets and my tech. Uh, um, I keep calling them texts and my messages on Facebook, which sort of fills me with cold dread, actually. Now you mention it. <laughs> that's why i think it's healthy just to delete all every song <laughs> yes exactly yeah clear your cash how do you feel about when a celebrity has a tweet brought up from 10 11 years ago hmm 
pretty much the same as I thought now, I suppose. It's... Yeah, I mean, I've never said anything that I would deem controversial. Um, mm -hmm. But I've certainly said stuff where the context wouldn't exist now. Like you yeah. said before with the, the sentences being removed on Facebook. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of my, my Facebook updates from on this day where it's just apostrophe S and then the statement because it used to have your full name. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I just kind of feel like, like you said, people grow and evolve and opinions change. Yeah. And yeah. an opinion you held 10 years ago isn't necessarily the opinion you hold today. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's just it's the evolution of the person who you are. I find it quite troubling because I, I do find that there is, especially on social media, there can be a bit of a witch hunt that takes place. Going back to Doctor Who, when Jodie Whittaker was cast, mm. I put on a series of like congratulatory tweets. And then in one of them, I said, I feel a bit sorry for her because unlike any other doctor, she will feel a bad episode worse. People were retweeting that and calling me a misogynist. Yeah, this is what I was saying, yeah. And it was like, well, yeah. go, go and look at the other 16 tweets in the thread where I'm like, this is a great thing, this is positive. You're purposely taking that one tweet out yeah. of context. It's that kind of thing I, I just want to steer clear from online and in, and in my everyday life as well. I mean, I, I don't... I think with in terms of Doctor Who and in terms of Jodie Whittaker, I never really thought it was a good idea to change the sex of the Doctor, but that was mainly because... Like I said earlier, there was an established history there where you've had uh, the same sex uh, represented, you know, the character represented by the same sex the whole way through. If they'd have done it, I don't know, let's say halfway, you know, let, let's say, I don't know, let's say, for example, the sixth and seventh Doctor were female and then maybe the 10th or the, you know, it, it would have been different. Um, I think maybe people may have accepted it a little more. Maybe it's the fact that they, they left it so late in the day. I've never been against the idea of the doctor being a woman at all like it would be a very interesting concept i said as much i went on bbc news in 2013 and i was asked the question do you think the doctor will be a female next time because i was talking about matt smith leaving the role and i said it, it would have to be the right actress but that's exactly the same for if he was male as well it, it all depends on the actor taking over the role i've grown up surrounded by girls who i suppose would be labeled tomboys back then you know girls who like to you know play football and you know take part in the things which were more sort of um stereotypically male-led but then again i grew up with sisters who had uh you know like mock-up you know like like the plastic kitchens all oh, right yeah when yeah with like they with the plastic food and you'd have like a little hob and everything you know i'd, I'd just be as happy playing that as i would playing football with the girls so it was like it never really occurred to me when i was growing up and i i actually i used to prefer sometimes spending time with females <clears throat> excuse me because it took the competition out of being surrounded by the blokes all the time i didn't feel like yeah, i was I competing all the time yeah so i've always i've, I've grown up in a uh, in a very you know female dominated world M most of my uh, cousins are female I've obviously got two sisters. I don't have a brother. I was ready to accept something like um, the Doctor becoming female. But like yourself, because of the fact that she's the first uh, female to take over the role, yes, she would feel uh, a bad episode worse than arguably anyone before. Arguably more than, I suppose, her and Patrick Troughton, I suppose. Because that scrutiny would be there. Because yeah, it'd be the absolutely. first time. And that's, you know, and I, I don't I don't see there being a problem saying that i think the problem lies in the fact that it's 
us and this is what i was saying earlier when i was saying i i hope that you know future generations of men feel as though they're just as valued is that we may feel like we may have to repress our things or forever you know repress our thoughts just in case someone may take them out of context and then we are labeled you know sexist or misogynist and it's interesting when you talk about playing with a play kitchen uh, my nephew he used to like pushing pram around with a little dolly in it. And I <laughs> yeah. remember taking him out one day and he just refused to leave without taking the pram. And the abuse and bibs and everything that was shouted from cars at this little boy pushing a buggy. Oh, it's like, not... What is going on? Yeah. He's 11 now. He's since long grown out of that. Mm. But it, it just really opened my eyes to the, the way society treat people differently. Yeah, and it's shameful that they do. Well, you'd, you'd like to think that on mass, you know, we don't anymore, but it's it's sad to think that people still do in isolated incidents. Well, you'd like to think isolated incidents anyway, but yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a friend uh, when I was growing up who every time we uh, played Star Wars always wanted to be Princess Leia. Whenever we played uh, something like Stingray, my friend always wanted to be, uh, I was going to say Ariel then, uh, Marina, you know, and obviously has a greater affinity and liked to like to be the girl, you know, like, like, like to represent the girls. Sure. And I'll be honest with you, I, I genuinely do not remember growing up anyone taking the mick or anyone being abusive towards that person. We just accepted that that's what they wanted to be. That's what they wanted to do. So I, I don't know, maybe we got lucky, I guess. I mean, we, we had... We had a fairly nice upbringing in an, in in our village, you know, very uh, very sort of stereotypical, I suppose you could say, um, you know, very nice English village, uh, you know, with a little uh, little shop and a little park and tiny primary school there. For the life of me, I I I just think we were quite exceptional. For the life of me, I can't remember an incident where you know someone said anything derogatory towards that person and i think it was because they were just a nice he was just a nice guy but then of course you know when we grew up and then we went on to senior school that's when things like that did start to happen you know i mean we, we talk now about um you know you've got to be careful about saying certain things i can safely say now and guarantee you that many people on this who are listening to this show um at some point has said to someone oh stop being gay or man up or you know and at, at, at the time you're only probably saying or you'd like to think that people that you're only saying what your peers are saying but it's but you look back and you kind of feel quite shameful for saying it and just joining in with the crowd oh absolutely Maybe that's the peer pressure of, of being a teenager i guess yeah yeah i look back at you know, I was never a bully at school, but there was this girl in my year that was constantly bullied, and I never stood up for her. Mm. And now I look back and I'm like, "Oh, you asshole!" Like yeah. all she all she wanted was a friend and just one person to like. She was the kid at school that everyone picked on, and it was just yeah. like, "Oh, why why didn't you just?" But you're so scared of being pariah as well. I don't. Know, it's it's one of my regrets is never sticking up for her. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, we, we had, you know, had a couple of girls like that at our school. I mean, our, our senior school was tough. I wasn't really scared of anything. I was encouraged to pursue my passions. So I, I did a lot of acting. I was always in school plays. I did a lot of writing. I used to uh, write my own versions of the Magic Key books uh, by Roderick Hunt. If you grew up in 
in an English school in the eighties and nineties, you 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 you'll recognise the yeah, I'm familiar the with illustrations, it. yeah. And I I was at five years old, I started writing my own stories, and I was reading them out to the classes, uh, like to my class, sorry, in the afternoon. So then when I went on to secondary school, there was almost a yearning to conform, I think, because all of a sudden you're with you're with these strangers, and you're not just one of a class of twenty five, let's say. You're now one of a year group of two hundred and fifty. So then you've got more and more people who are clambering for attention, more and more people are, are clambering for acceptance. And I think what happens then is you just you end up acting like your peers because none of you want to be any different. You all you all want to be popular and no one really has the guts to stand out. No, that's absolutely right. So what advice would you give anybody that is suffering from depression? Um, well, I've, in the last two or three years, taken on board account my experiences. I've really wanted to use them in a proactive way. And what I've done through a new scheme uh, that we set up at work a couple of years ago, I've become a healthy mind ambassador. And essentially what we are is we are sort of mental health first aiders. So if someone's at work and they're feeling depressed or they're feeling like they need to talk to someone, they can email us or give us a call. We will arrange to meet them as soon as possible and we will just sit down and basically we listen. We just let them talk. Um, we won't give out advice as such, but we will, you know, maybe point them in the direction of where they need to go next, whether that be just to talk to a family member or a friend or whether they will need to seek professional help. My biggest advice to anyone who is feeling low, anyone who is feeling depressed, if you're feeling at a really low ebb, my advice is simple. It's just to talk. Find someone you can trust. Find someone who you feel comfortable with and find someone who you can just talk to because talking really does help. And I think it's the strongest thing that you can do is to open up to someone and you don't have to tell them everything, of course, just whatever you're comfortable with. But even just just making that making that connection and just talking is I think the most important thing going forward, if you're feeling like that. And I, that's certainly that's certainly what I've done. Yeah, I'd agree. I'm going to put um, some numbers for Samaritans and stuff in the episode description. If anybody listening is feeling a little bit low, um, there are people you can turn to. I know in my local area, we have a thing called Eye Care, which I've just signed up to. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've got a phone interview with them in a couple of weeks. Well, I, ho I hope that really goes well. I yeah, sometimes well. sometimes just speaking to someone outside of your social circle can really help. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. There's also a company called Calm, and it's focused on uh, men in general, because uh, obviously suicide is the biggest killer for men under 40 in the UK. So look them up. They have a hotline. Yeah, they're on Twitter, Facebook as well. Just look up Calm. I can't remember what the acronym stands for now, unfortunately, but um, they're... they're they're good guys to talk to as well. Hayden, would you like to give one more plug for your podcasts and where people can find them? Yeah, so uh, you can search us uh, on iTunes. Uh, we look for Diddly Dumb Podcast. And you can also look on iTunes and Podbean, Stitcher, and Audioboo, and all your good po podcasting retailers um, for the James Bond uh, 007 show, Podcasters Royale. Excellent. It's a really good show. I highly recommend it. Oh, thank you, mate. Thank you. No problem. Mm -hmm.